are listening to Los Altos Institute's podcast, The Fourth World, our 13-episode course on global indigeneity, taught by me, Stuart Parker, the usual guy. This episode is about white settler states. White settler states are a very particular sort of country um, that is one of the recent kinds of state to come into existence. So um, the white settler states, traditionally, this has been the list, um, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. Now, South Africa no longer meets the criteria of a white settler state when this analytical category was originally established because um, it is no longer ruled by white settlers. Uh, and um, anyway, there are some... Uh, so white settler states are a thing that arose in the second half of the 19th century because of a whole bunch of coinciding global and local phenomena. So white settler states, uh, you may have noticed, are temperate places. They are uh, they're places that have a climate very much like that of Western Europe. And uh, this means that um, when immigration became a thing that um, was marketed and when we had essentially a free market competition over um, seeking uh, immigrants from um, Europe in uh, the second half of the 19th century, one of the things white settler states could offer was a climate that was more European. And this, um, and this, of course, fits into this longer-term concept of Neo-Europe's, the compulsion since the era of the Crusades of European settlers to remake the ecosystem in a place they arrive to resemble that of Europe. Uh, and that is, that is not a typical settler behavior. It was not even a typical European settler behavior until the 1200s. And the person who uh, first noted that this, Alfred Crosby, uh, died not feeling he had an adequate explanation for why uh, Europeans developed this practice halfway through the Middle Ages. Anyway, um, white settler states um, have those, thing, those characteristics. Another characteristic they have is um, because of their climate, they do not contain the important luxury uh, crops. You cannot produce the uh, luxury crops that drove the original European colonialism. Um, while there are a few exceptions in some white settler states regions, generally in most of the area of a white settler state, it is too cold to grow sugarcane. Um, it is, um, uh, it is suboptimal for tobacco growing, um, and uh, it is not a place where you're going to produce indigo or any of the other sort of exotic uh, plantation crops that 
original European mercantilism was based. So generally, in the places where you did have those things, um, and this includes regions of Brazil and regions of the United States, even though those places are generally white settler states, what, um, what uh, there's a, it was axiomatic from a demographic perspective that if you were producing indigo, tobacco, sugar, etc., um, you were using a European plantation system and that meant you were importing African slaves. So um, white settler states uh, or places that had low black populations compared to uh, let's say a place like Jamaica or Cuba, places that otherwise might've had a similar colonial history uh, but um, didn't have these crops that were so high value, it was lucrative to bring in slave labor. So when you're in the tropical and equatorial regions of the Americas, what you tend to find is uh, lowland regions have high black populations uh, because uh, those populations have stayed relatively close to the things they were imported to uh, produce. Uh, Another feature of the white settler states is that um, through a combination of a pre-existing low population density and the virgin soil epidemics together, the indigenous population is negligible. Uh, that most white settler states started with a very, very low indigenous population at the time they came into being in the mid 19th century. Uh, they, um, uh, in the case of Canada, um, we're, uh, uh, we're uh, at the extreme of the extreme because the boreal forest prior to European arrivals was one of the lowest population density regions of the world because of the extraordinarily hostile insect life. Um, the population density north of the tree line in the Inuit areas is three times what it was south of the tree line in Cree and Dene areas. Uh, and uh, that's really because um, this is a thing Canadians don't know they're famous for, like, you know, they're rapey mining companies and things like this. We also often don't notice that we're famous for actually having insects that... Um, that can kill a person faster uh, than uh, in uh, even in Australia and equatorial Africa. Uh, if you if you if you don't have some kind of shelter or something to keep them off, um, right? Black flies, deer flies, things like this can kill you with blood loss in a surprisingly short period of time. So. Uh, um, so it's not just that the virgin soil epidemics killed a lot of indigenous people in the white settler states. Often the white settler states had some pre-existing feature that had already depressed the indigenous population. Uh, so, and uh, one of the, other, the final features I'll mention is white settler states, newly independent, don't have a lot of personality of their own. Uh, Argentina and Uruguay, the reason for the boundary between them was totally arbitrary. 
and the uh, same with Uruguay and uh, Brazil and Brazil and Argentina. Um, these largely had to do with um, the decisions of local warlords in the 1840s, uh, pretty much detached from uh, any larger cultural ideas. As a result, none of these places started with a very strong regional identity. Some grew one over time. Um, one could see that, that Australia's pride in its cultural distinctiveness has, you know, steadily increased. And in part, that's because of Australians' uh, willingness to adopt certain indigenous cultural practices, even while effacing even the existence of indigenous people. Um, but these states are new. They don't really know what they're about yet. I mean, Canada's just the state that the Americans didn't win. Uh, again, totally. Why is Halifax in Canada? Why was it not part of the 13 colonies? Because it had the largest naval base. So the British just had more ships there to defend it. That's the only thing that makes Nova Scotia Canadian. So the um, so these, these white settler states were very weak on identity. And what that means is that as they began to coalesce into liberal democracies and try and tell a story about themselves. Um, this happened to be during the ascendance of 19th century race science. Origin of the Species comes out in 1859. And while Origin of the Species, uh, in fact, speaks against race science, um, people didn't read Origin of the Species. Like they, like with most texts you debate in a society, um, you read the people who have snappy editorial explanations of the text and then line up on different sides uh, over that. So, um, uh, so uh, Origin of Species uh, speaks against race uh, as an idea and race science. The follow-up book, Descent of Man, is specifically a refutation of race in 1876. And Darwin says, you know, for him, um, seeing evolution in these processes, this reveals God to him. And yet in the debates of the time, Darwin is largely attacked as an atheist and lauded as an expositor of race science. That's thanks to people like his um, cousin, Francis Galton, who writes the book Eugenics in 1873, uh, and Herbert Spencer, whose book Social Darwinism comes out in 1876. Um, what this sort of, and there are various other movements that get excited by this, the followers of Auguste Comte, uh, the French philosopher, get very into race science. And so this is really the first time where whiteness is put forward as some sort of principle, as an idea. Until the arrival of race science, whiteness was an unstated thing. Everything was, it was, an un, it was in unstated opposition to other things, but it did not describe itself. It didn't reveal itself. The term white was rarely used. We, we find probably the first law on the law books that describes whiteness is from a slave raiding fort uh, in Angola, Luanda, uh, in uh, 
the uh, early seven uh, in the early 18th century, and it defines white a uh, white person as a person possessing shoes. Uh, so that's uh, it's you know the next 150 years going to this new idea of race science, where everything is packed into race. What you see in encyclopedias from the time, it's like a number line, and you have a date uh and then um a picture of a kind of person and then a name for a kind of person and so all of the nations of the world are organized along this this number line right you go from uh cavemen to negroes to uh now what, what comes out oh yes uh and then um uh, and then uh, Indians, and then Indians, and then Chinamen, and then on it goes, right? And and eventually you reach the present and it's an Englishman uh, or a German, depending upon who wrote the encyclopedia. The French get in on it too, I suppose. But they essentially, this is a reimagining. This is a profoundly unempathetic moment in human history. It's a reimagining of all people who are not like you as a moment in your own past. Uh, so what that means is that the whiteness of a place determines how advanced a place it is. And so the white settler states, all of which have a lot of land and chronic labor shortages, um, this coincides with massive urbanization and enclosure all through Eastern and Central Europe. So people are flooding into European and people are being dispossessed of their rural lands in Europe. They're flooding into industrial cities. Um, they're working terrible shit jobs in those industrial cities. They're joining trade unions or they're trying to get out. And the white settler states beginning with Argentina go, well, this is our way out because Right there, we have a, a low population, but but you know, some of us are of mixed blood. If we as a nation become whiter, um, we will become more prosperous, we will become more peaceful, we will become more educated. And um, and in the case of Brazil, it really is like people pouring cream into their coffee. Uh, Brazil has a large rural black population in its north. And uh, the Brazilians are very concerned that that population will cause Brazil to degenerate. And so the solution is to whiten the racial mix of Brazil. So anybody who's whiter than the current average in Brazil is good. So Brazil establishes during the immigration boom, a low color line. Uh, Turks are white in Brazil. Um, Canada, at the opposite end of the scale, we have the highest color line on earth. We're the only ones who do not believe that Lebanese Maronite Christians are white. Uh, even they don't meet our criteria for whiteness. So there's a different color line depending upon where you are, where the current population is. But what this means is there's a big conversation going on about race in these places that conversation is premised on the seizure and clearing of land rapidly because the thing that you're trying to sell all these urbanites in Europe 
is the opportunity to have a farm, to go back to an imagined past when things <laughs> were safe, things were secure, everybody had their own farm. And you can see an element of neo-traditionalism here with this idea of returning to the family farm by going to the new world and establishing a homestead. Um, so the white settler states, um, they're, they are basically solving a labor problem with land. And if there is a single sort of material formula for what white settler states do, we solve labor problems with land. Take that as a perspective in the current Canadian housing and affordability debates. Um, there are all kinds of basic problems about um, a lack of retirement income. Uh, we're eviscerating our pensions, our pensions are growing more insecure and we are solving, we are doing, and we are solving this problem by converting land into retirement income. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic white settler state move of, uh, of a problem that is in no way tied to land uh, being solved with land. So one of the things that we associate with those early white settler states is if they made an accommodation with the indigenous people there around self-government, land, etc., those accommodations are torn up. We see this in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, the uh, treaty with the Maori is torn up after 28 years. And in Canada, we see the abrogation of all kinds of indigenous treaties and the creation of a numbered treaty system where we force people into treaties without their consent or presence. Uh, and of course, that's, that's the system for Alberta, Saskatchewan and uh, Northeastern BC. So there's a total termination of previous laws concerning indigenous people and um, this radical rapid repossession of land. In the United States, that's the Dawes Act of 1894 extinguishes all previous treaties and um, uh, slates all res reservation land for auction. Um, in, uh, in Canada, of course, it's Canada. Uh, coming into being. It's McDonald's government. It's uh, the invasion of the Northwest Territories with the RCMP. Uh, and it's, uh, it's this move from real treaties where people consent to the numbered treaty system where uh, the government simply etches a huge area onto the map, a sort of a big square, announces that all the indigenous people in it are subject to a certain treaty, rounds up a number of them randomly and makes them sign a document. Uh, so this is, um, uh, so the Canadian, uh, Canadian system, um, Australia around the same time uses its new pow powers of independence to declare the doctrine of terra nullius. Uh, we do not know where these Aborigines are from, but we swear no one was here when we arrived. So uh, that's the legal doctrine on which Australia has been based until the 21st century. Um, uh, they probably stole it off the South Africans. The thing is that the South Africans were kind of telling the truth when they said that. Um, that no, they, they did arrive before the Zosa and the Zulus. Um, it's one of the reasons we want to question uh, 
the seniority-based theory of whose land is whose. Because by that argument, the Afrikaners have a far better claim to the Cape of Good Hope than the people who constitute the majority of the population there. After all, as we've mentioned in the previous class, the Cape of Good Hope was sold to the Dutch by the Tswana, who then proceeded to exit the territory. So um, it, these seniority-based arguments seem quite reasonable in Canada, but um, they get you into trouble in South Africa. Uh, now, the white settler states then often had what is politely called civic nationalism. Um, very different than, let's take the United States of Mexico. Now, the United States of Mexico's legal doctrine was that um, following its extinguishment on, in 1521, uh, the government of Mexico reconstituted the Aztec Triple Alliance in 1821, and that its sovereignty emanates from the Aztec Triple Alliance. Um, where we take the Egyptian indigenous question, where again, the um, Egypt, Egypt's claim of independence from the rest of the Arab world is based on an identification with its pharaonic past and its little Coptic Christian minority. So even when you have a situation where a state is still being run by colonizers or settlers, normally it develops a nationalism that connects its present to its indigenous past and uses that indigenous past to legitimate its sovereignty. And uh, that's, um, and so, White settler states are strange because they don't have a theory of this. They refuse to develop a theory of this. They could, and, uh, and uh, instead, and that's because their theory of their own nationalism is one made out of race science. Now, even though the worst elements of race science were, at least for a while, drummed out of our uh, national civic life. The point is that white settler states tend to believe they have a scientific nationalism, a nationalism that isn't strongly inflected by culture and language. Now, usually white settler states are lying to themselves about that. Uh, they're often passionately attached to the English language or the Spanish language, but they tend to put forward a theory of, of this civic nationalism where membership in the community, it was originally understood as a shared whiteness and then it became a shared whateverness. But it, um, white settler states are typically reluctant to add, a strong, uh, to add complex cultural components to their nationalism. So this means that one of the few kinds of power indigenous people could normally exercise um, in, in a state like this, uh, white settler states denied them even that. Uh, that um, you might expect some 
permanent ceremonial office holder positions to tend to go to indigenous people, something along those lines. But as you'll notice, it's only in the 21st century that Canada has incorporated any significant indigenous ritual components into its civic life. And even then, it's some of them are not indigenous rich, they're not indigenous ritual components um, as much as they are um, settler narration of the absence of an indigenous ritual component, the land acknowledgement being the most absurd, right? Where it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of the great humble brags. Uh, you know, this land is somebody <laughs> else's. Here we are on it again. <laughs> um, oh, are any of them here? No, no, none of them are here. I mean, we used to at least just pull random people off the street if they looked indigenous and pay them to do a land acknowledgement. At least then somebody was getting some money. But now um, uh, it's amazing. Like we're like it, when people from any other time look at the net land acknowledgements, they'll just be floored. It's like. Did these people think this sounded like an apology? Um, what are they doing? Why do they have to claim to have conquered these people every fucking day? Uh, so I, I, I don't... Um, uh, anyway, so you get more of these kinds of strange ironies out of um, the white settler states. Um, another feature of white settler states and indigeneity is that... Um, whether indigenous people were horticulturalists or agriculturalists before colonial settler arrivals or whether they became so afterwards, um, white settler states have a real beef with indigenous people tilling the land. It's contrary to their ideology, which is that indigenous people must be removed from the land so it can be tilled. Uh, in the case of Canada's unique relationship to the Ukraine war, right? Our argument, um, we specifically went for uh, Ruthenian and uh, Russo-Ukrainian immigrants uh, on the, on, based on a climate component of the scientific racism, that our climate was most like that of Southwest Siberia and Ukraine of all the climates in the world and therefore um, uh, naturally, the bodies of people from those places are going to thrive and uh, till the soil more effectively in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, Alberta, than people from anywhere else because they've been bred for this climate. So um, you can see how then if if our justification for uh, the numbered treaties and all these other things is to remove indigenous people from the land so it can be tilled by these hardy uh, farmers from uh, Central Europe, uh, if the indigenous people are already running farms, if they already have domestic animals, if they already have these fences, um, that's a big problem. So one of the other things you associate with uh, the policies of uh, of these states is usually if indigenous people successfully build farming infrastructure in an area, they're expelled from that area and see, and the farms are seized. And uh, this continued well into the 1920s. 
Um, the uh, and of course, it's a great way to get infrastructure built uh, if you keep expelling people uh, and they have to build it again somewhere else. So white settler states then um, often had the harshest, most extreme policies for indigenous people. Um, and uh, they, um, uh, because of the way that indigenous people fitted into the state's justification for its own existence and its strategies for building its economy. Now, questions before I uh, say a few more things. It's all good. Okay, so, um, oh, were you gonna say something? You know, because I missed the first, I have a lot of questions, but I'm just gonna go with this and then I'll- Okay. Yeah. So, um, all right, we've, um, so when we think about, um, uh, so there are some things that we obviously associate with these states and their practices. Um, one is this inducing of a non-sedentary or semi-sedentary lifestyle in indigenous people who might not even have been so in the first place. Uh, so the places where indigenous people are tolerated in these economies tend to be at the far periphery of them. Um, and uh, often uh, working in, uh, in pastoralism. That although, uh, you know, it's uh, indigenous people are often not pastoralists for long, they often end up in those kinds of jobs, precarious employment and the like. Um, being viewed as sort of like this demographic problem or an unnecessary thing, many of these states undertake uh, assimilation and termination policies. Termination refers to the end of the legal status of indigeneity, that um, all legal distinctions between indigenous and non-indigenous people are removed. Uh, the, uh, so there's termination and there's assimilation. Now, remembering that these are people who think that all cultures in the world, not just indigenous cultures, but all cultures are simply a moment in their own past. Um, one can see how, um, although anthropologists are around and they're trying to let people know that this is really the wrong assumption, this is, anthropology is born as a discipline in 1884 and it has to overcome patternism, which is the, the popular discipline that contains uh, these theories of racial progress. Organizations like the NAACP believed in these theories at this time. You uh, read uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, writings about the talented 10th. And uh, um, this is such a master discourse, this scientific racism, that everyone fits into it. And it's a very, very rare kind of intellectual who stands aloof from the scientific racism of this age. Franz Boas, um, uh, the founder of anthropology, Max Weber, the founder of sociology. These are individuals who do stand aloof from this, who do question this. And of course they end up as the founders of two of the most venerable social sciences. But one of the reasons these social sciences are so respected 
is that they and almost no one else could see the folly of what was going on. Largely, you had far left social scientists who may have had a criticism and the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church's theories of salvation are especially incompatible with race. Also, the Roman Catholic Church's material interests were strongly threatened by assimilation. So this, this is a story that a lot of people uh, don't understand when we think about the residential schools. Now, one thing uh, to say about residential schools in Canada is um, they had day schools in the United States. The generation of people who went through those day schools are every bit as damaged as uh, the Canadian indigenous people who went through our residential schools. Uh, it's slightly different kinds of damage, but these are all traumatized people. Uh, the, the idea that, uh, because the thing is, we were working with a Scottish model of education and Scott, the Scottish people were incredibly violent educators, arguably the most violent educators in the world. The Scots beat the shit out of their kids on an enormous scale that made that was noticeable even in like the larger Germanic Northwestern Europe of the time. So, yeah, so we see um, and, you know, the uh, the thing about trauma is that expectations condition how traumatized you are a lot more than you might think. You know, there's that big Indian Ocean tsunami. And all those people we knew were going to die in India, we uh, sent over all these psychologists and psychiatrists to talk to the traumatized people. But people were just extremely sad. They were not traumatized because the expectation of one's relatives being killed in a natural disaster is more naturalized. So one of the things we have to remember about the, the way in which we profoundly traumatized indigenous uh, children through our education systems is that um, we um, is that they had one of the least violent systems of parenting and education in the world, and uh, the people running our system had one of the most, and uh, which is why it produced less traumatic effects on um, the uh, uh, on white children, even if they were subject to high levels of violence. So um, uh, now, in, uh, now, although this is technically outside the white settler states, it's useful to bring in Benito Juarez because he's the one who best helps to contextualize what was going on in terms of termination and assimilation. Uh, Benito Juarez was the first person of wholly indigenous descent to be elected to uh, the highest office in his land in the new world. He was, um, he was a general in uh, the uh, war of reform. He was a, uh, before that he had been a lawyer. He became the chief justice of the Mexican Supreme Court. And from uh, that position uh, ascended to the presidency of Mexico. Juarez had grown up in an indigenous community um, that like many other rural Mexican indigenous communities, they farmed maize and uh, other uh, local crops. 
Um, uh, people spoke the language of the indigenous people there. Um, there was a church. The church made pretty much all the decisions. The person running the church usually was not indigenous. And all of the books uh, in the community were in the church. And they were translations of Christian religious devotional texts into the indigenous language. Um, indigenous, and this is true for indigenous people in um, uh, the uh, French areas of, um, of the New World as well. Um, so these, uh, these texts uh, were your whole literary universe. Juarez ran away from home, lived in the streets uh, in a nearby city, taught himself to read Spanish, and, uh, uh, and uh, was able to enter university and obtain a law degree. Based on Juarez's personal story of his own life, he felt that indigenous people in the New World were prisoners in their villages. They were imprisoned in their languages and that um, they could not effectively advocate for themselves because they could not use the language of the courts and the government. And that um, until indigenous people could use the language of the courts and the government, they would continue to be oppressed. And that until indigenous people had access to the whole canon of Western literature, they could not fully intellectually develop themselves. And if they continued to live on collective lands rather than private lands, they would never learn the innovation and industry of um, a uh, liberal uh, independent worker. Now this is 1857, not all of these ideas have been totally discredited yet. It's what happens next that discredits a lot of these ideas uh, because they, they would have sounded quite reasonable to us in 1857. They would have sounded pretty reasonable to us for quite a while. When the Mackenzie Valley pipeline was stopped uh, and Thomas Berger defied the federal government and said, oh, yeah, I, this commission cannot approve a pipeline. They asked the Dene leaders who had um, fought the pipeline to a standstill what the biggest factor was in um, their victory. They said, we credit the residential school system. That's where we learned English. That's where we learned about the law. Um, so, this kind of assimilation project, people often say assimilation doesn't work. Well, one of the reasons we say that is you can't find people who've been assimilated, can you? They blend in. So you tend to ask people for whom assimilation hasn't worked, how it's worked. It's just a natural selection bias in how we evaluate assimilation. Um, so we do have to recognize that in the white settler states, although these things are founded on profoundly racist premises, um, there are also arguments that are being made at the time. And so we see in all of these places um, efforts to coercively educate indigenous people 
into uh, the uh, into the main language of the state and um, the uh, and efforts to suppress indigenous culture in order to make indigenous people white a favor that people believed they were doing for indigenous people. You see, the advantage of this is that if you hate indigenous people, you think they're not going to learn English and you um, don't think they're going to assimilate, you support these assimilation policies, you support these abduction policies because they're gonna hurt indigenous people and you hate them. Or if you love indigenous people and you accept all these premises about everybody becoming white and everybody becoming educated, you support exactly the same policies. And that is what uh, I refer to as an elite meta consensus. It's where everybody agrees on the same course of action across a wide, wide variety of motives. No matter what you're trying to do, these policies seem like a good idea for quite a while. And it's why it takes quite a while for people to notice how bad the results of these policies are turning out. There's such a strong vested interest in not knowing. Or, as with all kinds of policies we're pursuing today, there are a whole bunch of like public policies that were really innovative when we were kids that have been going for like 30 years and all the stuff they're supposed to do has been the opposite's been happening. And everybody's like, but we just started this yesterday. More, <laughs> harder. Um, you know, that's that's the downtown east side in Vancouver right now. Uh, we we went on. I mean, those policies seemed like a really good idea at the time. They seemed to be producing, and now not not so much. So, you know, I don't think this is. I don't think that our ancestors are uniquely. Um, willfully blind or uh, that this was a uniquely bad choice, but these assimilation and termination policies all fail. They fail to varying degrees, but um, one of the reasons they you'd think they would at least succeed in demographically extinguishing indigenous people um but they didn't even do that because people in a racialized underclass have higher birth rates so the more you impoverish an underclass the more of them there are and uh so these policies they're they're not productive of any of their claimed outcomes, except for individuals that you, where they've succeeded and you can't find the person because they're no longer indigenous, because they've dropped off the roles, because they're living as a white person. Um, so there are people for whom these policies are working and our systems of checking are failing to find them. So, Ultimately, this leads to the sense that we are really screwing up, we're really hurting these people. And the normal first response to that knowledge is to go, then we must have had a very good reason for doing so. That's usually what happens.
you just that it would be nice right if people's normal instinct was well maybe i should stop hurting these people until i figured out why i was doing it most people's reaction is it must have been for a very good reason and and they cast about and they find one um in the case of um uh one of the uh one of the ways that uh, of course you see this again all through all these places that have totally different historical trajectories. Um, the issue of drunkenness becomes the master discourse by the middle of the 20th century. That indigenous people are uniquely susceptible to substance abuse problems. Well, of course not. No, it's that um, relentlessly oppressed racialized underclasses tend to have substance abuse problems. Those are the people who have substance abuse problems. <laughs> uh, but um, what this means is that we can start recreating institutions that we've given up on, like the reservation. So in 1932, the United States restores its Indian, the 1934 restores its Indian reservations 40 years after disbanding them all under FDR's Indian Reorganization Act. Um, there were some other reasons FDR did that as well. Something called migrant worker culture had developed, fusing the radical itinerant culture of the Wobblies with that of dispossessed indigenous people. And um, this culture was producing disorder and chaos in labor systems in the early 1930s. So there was a good reason to separate the indigenous people back out. So there would stop being this synergy between radical unionism and indigenous culture. But for the most part, it's the master discourse of drink. It looks like we, our expectations were too high of the indigenous people. They just can't really be fully assimilated as we'd hoped. They have to become sort of permanent miners because as you can see, they've been so damaged by colonialism that we're going to have to keep, you know, incarcerating them and re-educating them until they, they get better. Uh, and of course that, although people say we've moved on, I would say we have retrenched on those positions in the 21st century. The theory of permanent minority, permanent disability, and, um, this, uh, this status as a kind of patronized, protected person. Um, it, uh, but it really, it's, it's during the, uh, the, it's after the Second World War where you see this becoming the new thing. So there's a greater willingness to engage in limited degrees of land reform. But the other thing that's happening is that of course, Indigenous people are not exactly doing nothing at this time. The efforts on the part of Indigenous people to reorganize themselves uh, during the early Cold War is considerable, right? Their governments have been repeatedly created and destroyed. Um, and what we start seeing is uh, the rise of broad associational cultures where it's um, where we have all these parochial systems of reservation governments or Indian band governments or reserve governments. And these are clearly designed to keep indigenous people apart. 
the pan-Indianism that was developed uh, in the first phase of pan-Indianism from sort of 1680 to uh, 1890, that comes to be replaced by a much more pragmatic pan-Indianism based on these pan-Indigenous institutions, particularly the sort of North Americanization of the powwow. And we see a similar trajectory in Australia uh, with um, the formation, with once a uh, non-apocalyptic pan-Indigenous culture starts to coalesce, um, you see the, you see um, reserve governments, but also just big membership-based organizations federating into larger groups. And so the Indian Brotherhood of Canada, what will later become the Assembly of First Nations, uh, comes into being in the 1950s. In the United States, um, there's a bit of a different trajectory because the land question functions differently. The unceded territory idea is an idea from Canadian law that mo moved into Canadian culture, which has only recently arrived in the United States with the sort of merger of the cultural left of Canada with uh, that of the US. So this unceded land discourse is, is pretty new to America, whereas so our, uh, in Canada, the, um, uh, our constitutional order, the fact that we recognize the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the U.S. doesn't, that's, what, that's what's shaped our debate, legal exigencies. So in the United States, um, we, there isn't this preparation for these battles royale in the courts that the Native Brotherhood uh, begins preparing Canadian Indigenous people for. In the United States, it's red power. It's the American Indian movement. It's the indigenization of the civil rights movement, the counterculture movement, etc. Uh, so there's a... Um, there's a different center to the rise of um, the indigenous rights movement in, um, in the US. In uh, Brazil, um, one, of the, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the problems Brazilians face is that um, there are really two indigenous solitude, or three, uh, two main ones in Brazil. The Tupi culture, that was the coastal culture of uh, Northern Brazil, was decimated in the virgin soil epidemics, but remained a fairly small, significant uh, group. The non-sedentary peoples descended from the horticultural peoples of the uh, Amazon before uh, the um, virgin soil epidemics and the Little Ice Age. Those people um, were disconnected. Uh, many of them were uncontacted still. And um, complicating that matter was, of course, the fact that of the significant number and power of maroon communities in Brazil. So in Brazil, we don't see a we don't see a movement uh, for land justice that is indigenous that the Tupi people are in. There's a movement for land justice for racialized coastal Brazilians 
that contains both Afro-Brazilians and Tubis because their interests are the same, their communities are similar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in Brazil, we see it's, we see more of a class-based alliance. And that's one of the things that is different between Latin America, between the Hispanic white settler states and the Anglo white settler states. The Spanish world largely thinks about questions of land justice and self-government in terms of class. And the Anglo world thinks about them in terms of race. There are interesting reasons for that distinction, but it is a very, very sharp one. And uh, it um, and so while you do have exceptions like Evo Morales's regime and the refoundation of Bolivia, even then when you peel back a lot of the racial justifications that um, made Oliver Stone happy, um, most of this is about class uh, in uh, in Bolivia. Uh, it's simply because Bolivia regained its indigenous majority that things are put forward in these indigenous nationalistic terms. So um, in uh, in the nineteen seventies, uh, we see um, uh, we see probably the greatest early successes taking place in New Zealand. New Zealand had always had the highest proportion of indigenous people demographically of any of the white settler states. And so it should not surprise us that it's in New Zealand where we see some of the most significant reforms, uh, most notably the um, uh, the adoption of the Scandinavian model uh, in um, creating a guaranteed um, block of seats for Maori people. So it's not just that um, New Zealand uh, restored some reservation lands and um, became tolerant of the Maori language again, uh, one of the first ways the concessions are manifested is at a national level. And that's because New Zealand started with one treaty, the treaty between the Maori and the settlers, that as a Polynesian kingdom, the Maori were sufficiently centralized as to be able to consult their own people and ink off one treaty. And so New Zealand reflects its indigeneity upwards in a different way than places where we signed as many treaties as possible. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, so the white settler states, as the 1970s come along, there is this growing consensus that the assimilation policies have played out and that the ideas of permanent minority, the ideas of being permanent wards are also, a, um, are also an affront to indigenous people. There has to be a way out of the current relationship, uh, but that can't simply be the nullification of indigeneity. Uh, and 
there, even to this day, right, we don't really know what we're replacing the colonial system with. I mean, we know what it looks like in Nunavut, where indigenous people are a demographic majority. Uh, we know what it looks like in the Nass Valley, where the Niska people are the demographic majority. This kind of stuff gets harder to imagine in places like Surrey, where there are 320 Semiamu band members and um, 630,000 uh, non-Semiamu band members in the municipality. So uh, uh, one of the last things I, I will say about this problem of permanent disability and how this seeps into the discourse, um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, um, is a fascinating, fascinating area of medicine. Uh, I have a, some of, but my history of the world economy course contains a theory about its larger historical impact. Anyway, in the, now, if you are an English speaking person, you believe that Sterling Claren of um, Seattle uh, discovered uh, FASD in 1971. Um, if you read other languages, you know that a French person discovered it the year before, but nobody in the English medical establishment was reading French journals at the time. Uh, Sterling Claren was a, had a very strange specific specialty in medicine, uh, one that you can see traces a little bit back to um, the scientific racism of the 19th century. Sterling is a dysmorphologist. Uh, in other words, a medical scholar of people who look weird. Uh, so whereas the French discovered the brain abnormalities associated with FASD, they went a different route. Sterling was the one who observed what's called the FASD stigmata. Um, which is that your um, eyelids lack an epicamphal fold and you have a flat philtrum. Um, this is how you can uh, find uh, people of any age with FASD because they have these facial characteristics that reveal their illness. Well, except uh, for one problem. North American indigenous people also often do not have an epicamphal fold and often have a very shallow philtrum, irrespective of alcohol use. It's a phenotypic characteristic that uh, these folks developed over here. But you can see how, if you're working on a discourse of drunkenness, um, this is just a gold mine for keeping indigenous people down in North America. Um, the assumption that Normal indigenous faces indicate a form of mental disability that is incurable. Um, this, um, this speaks to permanence. So you, uh, in fact, we, we have this problem up to the, the present day, right? That, they, that certain mental disabilities are so class and race inflected based on the theories of blame associated with them that um, we often diagnose autistic indigenous kids with FASD. And we just don't believe their parents when their mothers say they didn't drink during pregnancy, even though indigenous women today are less likely to drink during pregnancy than any other group in Canada.
Um, it's because they tend to be poorer. Poorer women drink less. Uh, they um, are more likely to live in dry communities, as many indigenous reserves are dry communities. Check another box, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet you'll still get all these FASD diagnoses. Uh, Mom must have gone off the wagon. On the other hand, of course, the women who drink most during pregnancy are white upper middle class professional women. When their children have FASD, they're often diagnosed with autism because it's not the parents, not the mother's fault if it's autism. So, um, and in our school system, of course, we fund um, assistance workers for autistic children at 30 times the rate we do um, FASD kids. So uh, this, um, uh, so where, where I've gone here is I've sort of tried to fill in the 100 years, the 1870 to 1970 period, because we're about to go to the climax of the course where the fourth world is declared, where there is this idea of a global indigeneity and a set of political imperatives associated with it. Uh, so I've, um, I've, I've skipped one or two details because I wanted to catch you up a bit, Christine. I want to know what, uh, what some of your bedrock questions were. Um, so I'll, I'll just say as, as a background, so I'm American, mm -hmm. I'm temporarily. Um, not sure exactly how long. I'm Puerto Rican, so I have a lineage that I know of that, you know, land going way back. Um, but I was raised in New York and, you know, basically, I'm obviously light colored, I, basically because there was still a lot of racism in New York when I was growing up, I identified as Italian American. So that's, you know, father's Italian, mother's Puerto Rican. So just by background, you know, professionally, I've done completely different things, but very late in life, I'm in my 50s now, I'm suddenly interested <laughs> in colonialism. And um, so I've been just kind of finding my way. I come from a more spiritual perspective of, you know, it's, it's basically what I've been doing with my extra time the past few decades. So I know a lot of practices that I think, frankly, like were in me and they've kind of come to me. But I don't actually know much of the history. So I'm kind of hearing this, you know, not just Canadian, but I'm a little sketchy on, you know, all of it. I've done some reading. I've read, you know, what is that book? The Indigenous People's History. In yeah. Book, very popular book. But that was about five years ago I read that. So, yeah. Let me just, so, let me just briefly touch down Puerto Rico, and then I'll ask you a few more things. So... We um, so Puerto Rico came out as, as an example because, of course, it is the ongoing evidence of a thing we all know to be true, but is uh, because it's never not true, but that is never really written down, which is a territory can only become a state in the US if it has a white majority. That's why it took 70 years for New Mexico to become a state, uh, whereas uh, other states could just become states overnight. So the, I mean, so the, the sort of position of Puerto Rico within the racial hierarchy of the American empire is fascinating. But of course, although, you know, it was economically punished and in all these other ways treated as an inferior place, you had this different migration opportunity. And so I remember growing up watching 
Sesame Street and the minority of record, the way people understood Hispanic Americans was to refer to them as Puerto Ricans. Uh, and this, and, uh, and this is, um, you know, so one of the only Hispanic ethnicities that was allowed to consistently move into the United States end up being uh, Puerto Rican people. And so that's one of the ways that um, the identity of, um, of Hispanic Americans uh, was effectively separated from indigeneity. Because of course, people from anywhere in the mainland, on the mainland of, uh, of uh, North America and South America, they're large, they're more like, they are gonna have far more indigenous blood than African blood unlike people from the Caribbean. And so, um, yeah, so the sequence of that migration is really interesting in terms of the change. And it's also important to remember that, yeah, from 1926 until the late 1960s, um, our immigration policies um, were the most white supremacists they ever were. They, we had the most restricted immigration, uh, the most strongly racially based quotas. They were not based on national origin. They were specifically based on race. And so there's this moment in 68, 69, where Lyndon Johnson, Lester Pearson, this bunch um, open up their immigration. Uh, in Australia, um, one of the reasons Australian Aborigines end up having a surprisingly strong effect on Australian culture, even though they face worse racism, worse poverty, worse persecution. They don't even do nuclear tests on them. And Australia doesn't have nukes. They just lend their indigenous people, other people to nuke. Anyway, it, um, uh, but the Australian experience is um, because they, they had, um, they cut off immigration so early and maintained their highly racist immigration policies up to 1982, uh, indigenous people ended up becoming the minority group of record in uh, Australia in a way that uh, they're not in the United States. So anyway, I just thought I, I'd throw in the immigration politics and sort of like, yeah, situate, uh, situate that. So what are you hoping to get out of this course? What are the things you most wanna know? fill in a lot of basic blanks like you just going through today you know a lot of the basic history i'm not familiar with so that that is a great starting great point. you'll like the first you'll like the first few episodes then too yeah it was really yeah, thorough yeah. and uh, i definitely will um i mean just as an american coming up here the past year it's I mean, it's really striking the difference, right? It's, you know, just in the US, there there are these isolated reservations, but otherwise, like there's there's no sense of the people. I come from the San Francisco Bay Area. So just recently, like you start to have, you know, people, like you said, it came because of the merger of the left, it came from Canada. And now you have, you know, I was on a lonely land. But this is very new. I mean, this was not going on a decade ago. So, you know, in, in general, um, other than if you grew up in a Puerto Rican community or, you know, now they're Mexican-American communities, but putting aside those 
immigrants. There weren't indigenous people blended in. And here, you know, there are. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm on the North Shore and, uh, you know, it's really very different. So. Yeah, the, the Slywatooth or Barard, as they used to be called, uh, they, uh, yeah, they're, they're extraordinarily influential in terms of land. And so, and they, they've successfully developed their own housing system uh, very well that in a way that serves them. So often, like, um, Musqueam's housing system is terrible, right? Most Musqueam people live off reserve. It's only poor people who live on reserve. It's um, a bunch of the housing that's supposed to be theirs ended up being sold to some rich people. And um, so in Southwest Vancouver, there's a reserve, but this is like an underclass you never see. The sidewalks disappear when you drive onto the reserve, that sort of thing. Whereas there's been some very good luck and some very good management on the part of uh, the Tsleil-Waututh that um, has meant that, yeah, people can come home. Um, but there are parts of Canada where Indigenous people are totally invisible. Um, the stretch from uh, the, yeah, the stretch from Montreal to Windsor down the North shore of Lakes Erie and Ontario, it's like the United States. Um, there's no real presence. Uh, the population is minute. It's dwarfed by these huge urban populations and this mosaic of other minorities that are far more significant. Uh, and so BC is maybe, I think it was 5%, I think it's now about 7% Indigenous. Saskatchewan's about 14%. Uh, Manitoba, Manitoba, I think, is up around uh, 14 as well, maybe a little higher. Ontario, half a percent. Quebec, a quarter of a percent. Uh, so the experience in the West and the demography of the West is very, very different. And yeah, and, B and, yeah, and in BC, you still have Indigenous majority areas, which be inconceivable in Central Canada. So the demographics really do condition a lot. But then the strangest thing about the demographics of where we are is the downtown east side, because there, uh, the indigenous people you find there are from all over the country. Uh, they're part of a huge system that shunts very troubled people into one neighborhood so that... Uh, that neighborhood can retract can attract insane amounts of healthcare research money from all over the world. The pharmaceutical rains money on the downtown east side from the pharmaceutical industry. It's actually quite hard, you know, to live in a luxury condo and just have a short walk to a tuberculosis epidemic you're studying. Uh, it's uh, it's a uh, I, I think people. I think people really need to understand just how economically productive the misery we've created is. I compare the downtown east side to the central pyramid of Tenochtitlan when Cortez arrives. It's like, oh, the empire is being powered by a sacrifice pyramid. Now this makes sense. Uh, so, um, yeah, the... Yeah, so there, yeah, there, one of the struggles is, right, you're, one is talking about indigeneity as this thing, 
And even just with the white settler states during the Cold War, I've really leaned on the English ones. I've said very little about, I've, you know, I talk about the Portuguese one. I've said very little about, um, you know, Uruguay and Argentina and the ways that, um, you know, uh, Guarani revival and Paraguay affected. There's, there are so many little stories that are regional parochial stories. And it's a challenge in a course like this to balance between the main narrative that applies everywhere and the little interesting notes that uh, that diverge from that narrative. Um, the uh, yeah, like the Australians adopting the walkabout tradition from indigenous people, despite the fact that if you read Australian propaganda about indigenous people, it's the uh, from the period it's the most dehumanizing. It describes indigenous people in the least flattering, most primitive ways. And yet Australians fundamentally alter their theory of young men coming of age uh, based, on, uh, based on this coming of age tradition that they see as universal among Aboriginal communities. And so, yeah, there are these, uh, these strange little stories that... Uh, don't fit in anywhere. Um, in some cases, I'll come to those stories when we hit the era where it's appropriate to tell the backstory for the strange event that's happening. Certainly do that with Donald Marshall in Nova Scotia. Uh, Doug, any questions? Uh, no. no. Just, uh, just an observation uh, when you're talking about uh, you know the concept of whiteness coming into the theme around the time of Darwin. Uh I mean, that served well for the United States and Canada. Here you've got a bunch of nationalities that all hate each other, you know, the Hungarians, the Germans, French hate everybody, right? Uh, but hey, we're all white, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is that that whiteness is given out in dribs and drabs. There's a great book called How the Irish Became White. Um, because initially the, the category people like the Irish, the Hungarians... The Turks, the, the category that the Jews, the category they fall into is whiter, whiter than what we've got now. But often the attainment of full whiteness takes decades. So, um, and of course, what you know, whiteness wouldn't be successful if it weren't dynamic, uh, if it didn't constantly change. So the Irish actually undertook a specific set of strategies, like. That's why they created a whole bunch, the, the papacy created a bunch of universities in uh, the 1870s, was because they looked at the criteria that the people who were white met, the people who surrounded them in Europe, all the Scandinavians and whatever, these people were already white, what do they have that we don't? And there's this sort of checklist. It's also, um, uh, they also encourage their members to join the clan. Uh, because, uh, you know, so bishops encourage people to join the Klan, um, try and infiltrate it because it's an anti-Catholic organization and you want to um, get rid of the anti-Catholicism and focus on the racism if you want to be included as a white person. Uh, for a long time, you couldn't be Catholic and, uh, and white at the same time. Uh, the, um, and so... Initially, they let the Irish in, and then the Northern Italians. Uh, and we don't get the Northern Italians. We get the Southern Italians. The Northern Italians all think Argentina is going to be richer than America because it's whiter than America. 
It just doesn't contain any fossil fuels, but nobody's thought of that as a factor yet. Uh, so uh, Powered by whiteness. <laughs> yes. So the thinking was, these things are powered by whiteness. So the rich Italians from the north moved to Argentina, and the poor ones end up in Boston and uh, end up, uh, you know, in... Uh, and so it takes a while for Southern Italians to become white. Um, it's not really until the, uh, the 50s that the Poles or most Slavs are white. Uh, in Canada, um, although that happens faster in the United States. In Brazil, Turks and Japanese people are white. Uh, and of course, Japanese people were white everywhere for quite a while when they, you know, wore top hats and uh, won wars against Europeans. So uh, they, um, so there's, a, there's an axiomatic thing with a lot of these nationalities. But yeah, the white settler state, I think that, you know, one of the things that we're grappling with in Canada today is this sense that this civic nationalism, this rebranding of white settler nationalism that we did in 1967, you know, because we sort of refounded the country between 67 and 82, completely changed its social contract, its narrative, its age, and... Uh, and it's like, well, this has run out of gas. I think yet another reason the convoyists are viewed as so threatening is they very clearly have a theory of Canadian nationalism. Uh, and it is, it's not a, it's a, it, and it has an idea of an ideal citizen who's basically like a, uh, um, a Métis industrial worker from the periphery. Um, that's that's what they're depicting as as their perfect citizen um, with a whole bunch of values that are, you know, you know, speaking frankly like that, that that would be a radical change to become a Canadian value. Right. That's and the thing is, like the parts of your nationalism that get you are the parts you do every day, not the parts you do once a year. And so I think, uh, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that the country freaked out about those folks, but uh, I think that um, at the end of the day, the whites, um, the sort of liberal version of white settler nationalism has run out of gas in all of these states, but people are terrified about what might come after it. Can you say more about that? What, what, what do you mean? What do you think they're terrified about? I think some people believe that the nationalism of people like the convoyists is um, like, uh, you know, uh, present day Italian fascist nationalism. I think some of them really think these people are white nationalists. And the fact that they're, when they're met by a counter protest from the left, the counter protesters are always whiter than the people they're protesting. So I have a lot of trouble believing <laughs> that that this is particularly mainstream. There are just too many people at those rallies in turbans, right? There's just so, but I, I think people have terrible trepidation uh, about it. I think that there's also like a, I mean, there's a really strong class politics we don't acknowledge to be a class politics, and so, um. This is about refinement, and you can have a refined nationalism or you can have a populist nationalism. And so 
that nationalism also tells people the things they value most about their performance of their Canadianness or their whiteness is a thing not only that they don't respect, but that they think is bad. When we narrated our national myth in 67, we made it be about um, avoiding conflict through elite consensus. That's the story of the founders of Confederation, the fathers of Confederation. That's why Louis Riel isn't one of the fathers of Confederation, because although it would be racially inclusive to add him, um, we want it just to be the white man who shook hands at that table in 1867. And uh, we don't even need to know their names. We just need to know that some deal was cooked up in a back room and we should feel good about it because they looked after our interests when they did. That's the story that Lester Pearson and Pierre Trudeau put in our history books. If our nationalism were like a Mexican nationalism, which is more what you see out of the truckers, it's historically discontinuous. It contains heroes who are decades apart. Um, it includes figures like Louis Riel, but it also includes uh, figures like um, Peter Lougheed when he was the leader of the Gang of Eight in the 82 Constitutional Conference. Danielle Smith was rattling off some grievance about that the other day. And I'm sure it went right over the heads of progressive Canadians because their national myth doesn't contain the failure of the Gang of Eight in 82. And there's a sense of grievance that is being newly cultivated by people like Danielle Smith around that going, you know, those bastards, those wily bastards, they tricked us, they broke our solidarity and they screwed us in 82, which is what happened. I mean, the fact is that two premiers and the prime minister um, beat the other eight premiers um, in a way that was pretty humiliating. And uh, this, um, those kinds of stories, you can see like, there's more creativity. There's something vibrant going on with this new nationalism. And it'll be like any other nationalism. It will exclude some people. It will include others. It will include a pack of lies. Um, it'll do all those things. But yeah, and I, and I don't think we can really know what it's going to be because we haven't seen the strength of the reaction against it. My worry is that the effort to suppress this theory of nationalism will become more coercive. The effort to, yes, well, that is, does seem to be what's happening. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the questions I've had is, is the race, uh, sorry, the class, mm -hmm. how it fits in, because it's unmistakable. You know, I was a, a longtime progressive, considered myself, and now I consider myself completely politically homeless. Yeah. And it's unmistakable that you've had a flipping in the U.S. And it seems to have happened here as well, as, as much as I can tell, only paying attention for, for one year, where it's the, the working people, the non-laptop people, as I call them, you know, are, <laughs> are you know, more and more have moved to, to the right-wing party. So... Yeah, in some ways, Canada was out ahead of, uh, of the U.S. even on this. Um, this transition, some parts of it started earlier in Canada 
because they're um, because we our two party system broke in the nineties, and so you guys had a long period where people of patrician culture were pushed out of the Republican Party into the Democrats, and then people of a more proletarian culture were pushed out of the Democrats into the Republicans, and that was a pretty I mean, it was a punctuated process. Gingrich in 94 was an event. Uh, the Tea Party in 2010 was an event. But what happened in Canada was um, our social Democrat third way government's Brian and austerity programs that were generally harsher than the rights initially, although the right more than caught up. So the beginning of the 90s, this was the zenith of the NDP's power in Canada. It had been the it had been the Progressive Party in the West, and the Liberal Party was the Progressive Party in the center. So we had this regionality to the um, to the system. So um, the NDP was a minor party in the rest of the country, and the Liberals were a minor party in the West. And they had that thing going, that thing seemed to be a pretty stable thing. And then in, uh, because of all this constitutional brinksmanship that did not happen in the United States uh, during the Mulroney government, because Mulroney tries to undo that 1967 to 82 process. Uh, during the Mulroney government, the national coalitions are so destabilized that these two new parties appear out of nowhere. In Quebec, it's the Bloc Québécois. They are initially far left social democrats um, who are basically the argument for the longest time in Quebec, it's not the argument today, was we can't have social democracy within Canada. We can only achieve it as a separate country. And so the Bloc Québécois coming into being, that wasn't surprising, but an equivalent happened in the West called the Reform Party, which was far right populist and working class. And there had always been a populist working class tendency in the West, but the NDP was so discredited and it was bringing in such extreme forms of austerity that people who wanted to vote for some kind of socialism had nothing on the ballot, absolutely nothing. And so the working class, the, the Western working class flocked to the Reform Party in droves and never really returned to the parties of the left at the national level. So the Reform Party eventually became so large that it swallowed the old Conservative Party and then renamed itself the Conservative Party. So, yeah. <laughs> So it has its roots in a populism that is not the, the same thing for the U.S. Yeah. So in yeah. So there. Yes. Yeah, so this earlier thing that happened here in the nineties. Um, I mean, it did happen in the United States. It's just that your Reform Party um, was a vanity project of one man. If Ross Perot had run a set of congressional House candidates um, in 92 and then again in the midterms in 94, then you'd be on the Canadian uh, historical trajectory. That helps me to understand a lot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's one o'clock. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Um,
I'll go back and listen. Thank you for the <laughs> email. I just, if I missed the first couple and. Um, oh, and then things just get ahead of you. Unexpected things that happened here when I signed up. So anyway, it was really nice to meet you face to face. And uh, hopefully it'll be an even closer proximity in the new year. Sounds good. Thank All right. You. Thanks, Christine. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. There we go.